you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 10. And what we're going to do is follow up with uh, many of the same types of themes, but we're going to try and develop uh, the idea of love in a slightly different way tonight. So this morning we looked at love, and I believe that Mark, as he develops these same ideas, um, his primary objective is to get you and I to say, I need to love the Lord better, and how does that look? What, what can I look to in my life to say, is that truly being developed? Whereas as Luke develops the idea, um, that is still primary, um, primarily happening, but he chooses to further develop the whole idea of loving your neighbor as a demonstration, and he picks up on that in a far heavier manner than Mark chooses to do as he develops some of these same types of ideas. So uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. We'll pick it up in verse 25, and we'll go through verse 37. Um, so learning to love. If you want to take your Bibles and let's read together. Um, I'll start in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothes, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now a chance, a certain priest came down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And when he had, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, "Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come, I will repay you." So, which of these three do you think was neighbor to? among the thieves. And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Father, we do thank you for the word. We thank you for its uh, truthfulness and for the fact that you use it to instruct us and that you use it to help us to better understand how we are to live in relationship to you and in relationship to others. We pray that the text would convict us and help us to see um, our need of loving others and loving you uh, better as we approach 2022. And that as, as a result, that we would be more confident in knowing that our home with you, our eternal life, is secure uh, because we see the evidence that Jesus himself says uh, is supposed to be evident in somebody who will have eternal life. We pray that we would uh, demonstrate true love and that it would cause people to question, and cause people to uh, pursue after what we have. In your name we pray. True love promises eternal life. 
And I think that's the theme that uh, Luke is seeking to develop in this passage. It's interesting. Uh, that's not necessarily how you and I would answer the question of eternal life, right? And yet that's the question that Jesus has been asked, right? Uh, the question has been asked by the scribe, Hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is pretty much love. Love will provide, love will promise you eternal life. Now, before you uh, stone me, uh, more can be said about that than simply what's on the screen. But that's the summary of it, right? What is the love controlled by? What is the love guided by? It's guided by and directed through faith, right? So they're demonstrating their love to God. Why? Because they believe something about who God is. They place their faith in God. And because their faith is in God, their trust in God for all that he does to sustain them physically and spiritually, what do they do? They love God. What else? I mean, what other response would be logical and reasonable for people who have received as much as believers have received from the hand of God, other than to say he is the source of my everything and the only response that's fitting is for me to love him. And I, I demonstrate that in part by doing love, by loving the people that he puts in my life and, and demonstrating the compassion that he's demonstrated to me to them. And so Jesus' answer is, uh, you want to know if you have eternal life, what can you do? You can demonstrate true love and it points to the fact that you have received true faith. You have come in true faith. You have placed your faith in me and you have received me. And so as he begins telling this story, as Luke begins telling us his story, um, he introduces us to a man who's on a quest. And this man comes and he approaches Jesus, uh, and his purpose in approaching Jesus is to test Jesus. This has been uh, what's happening in uh, verse 25. He says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So that's his question. What, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks, uh, he asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And as he does that, uh, it demonstrates a huge sense of, uh, sorry, as he does that, his, his question is flawed. Okay, It's uh, very self-centered. He has a, seems to have this idea that he himself, in his own ability, his own strength, can do something uh, through his own ability that will result in him receiving eternal life. And so he has a self-sufficient idea about him that, you know, through my own effort, through my own abilities, I can do something that will result in God's pleasure, that will result in God's blessing. And Jesus is going to bring about conversation with this man so that he realizes if that was possible in your own ability, you couldn't do it, right? Because throughout the conversation, it becomes so apparent that this guy is not willing to go and love his neighbor in the same way that Jesus is describing. Because when Jesus says, who loves, he goes, uh, the person who has compassion. He doesn't say the easier, simpler word, Samaritan. He's not impressed with the answer. And so Jesus um, sends the man on a quest on his own, uh, of his own. And he 
asks him what the law says in verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? How do you understand it? Um, how, do you, how do you interpret what God requires of people? And the man's response is intellectually a good response. He understands the law. He understands what God requires of people. God wants people to love God, and he wants them to love people. And that's, you know, the whole ten, all the, not the whole Ten Commandments, all the commandments can be summarized under those two commandments. And so the man is intellectually on track. He's on the right path. And Jesus um, notes that he's rightly acknowledged the two areas that are primary in securing eternal life. And he, he tells him in verse 27, so he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. And the man is not sufficiently satisfied with that answer up to that point, right? So he comes back to Jesus and he's like, well, okay, I understand the love your God part. That's pretty, you know, easy to comprehend. Well, what do you mean by love your neighbor? Who is my neighbor, Jesus? How do I understand? How do I interpret this aspect in verse 29? And so he comes and he asks him in verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. Once again, you're seeing his own self-sufficiency. You're seeing his own theological uh, ideas and system at work justify himself, something that God alone can do for the sinner. And he says, who is my neighbor? If this is what will justify me, what do I need to know? Who do I need to love as my neighbor so that I'm justified in my own effort? And I can do so without faith. Do so on my own terms, not on yours, Jesus. And so Jesus chooses develop and answer his question but he does so by telling him a story Jesus tells the man he is on the right path and as he does so he moves now into developing the answer for this man but as he moves into developing the answer the man follows up and asks who his neighbor is and Jesus demonstrates uh, the man demonstrates his failure to live by faith by asking the question he's not living uh, trusting that God can make him righteous, he's looking for how do I justify myself. And so Jesus moves in and he begins to provide the man with a comprehensive answer to a story. And as he does so, he tells of a man who's going on a journey. In verse 30 and following, he says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, having him, leaving him naked and dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, 
when I come, I will pay. So, the, the man's taking a journey, and he's journeying on a rather treacherous uh, piece of ground. And uh, even, even into the 20th century, uh, rather recently, this, this specific road was viewed as a treacherous path. It was viewed as a path that was very easy for one to be robbed and to be taken advantage of. And so, uh, back in that day, the people would have heard this story, and as they hear Oh, he's journeying from this location to that location. That's a scary trek of road. That's not a piece of road that you really want to go on too much. And as he goes on this road, he gets robbed. He's beaten up. His clothes are taken off. And he's uh, left for dead. And as he's laying there, uh, slipping away, heading towards death, different people come and they see this. And first of all, a priest comes, and he sees him. And as he sees him, he ignored the poor man's plight. What, what was the priest in Israel's system of religion? A priest was somebody who specifically went before God and ministered to God and made sure that the nation was in a right relationship, or at least various parts of the nation, were in a right relationship with God. This is somebody who should know who God is. They should know what God requires of them and how they're supposed to relate to other people. Their knowledge of God and their knowledge of how God wants them to relate to others should have led to a great love for God and a great love for others. And yet, this priest chooses to look on somebody who is in desperate need of help, and he chooses willingly to brush his hands off and to continue on his journey. The point of the passage is not to highlight the various possible motives or reasons why this priest chose to live a selfish lifestyle and not care for him because he possibly might have been unclean or something like that. The point of the passage is this person should have known better. He had the same head knowledge as who? As the lawyer himself who is asking the questions. He knows the big passages of scripture of their day. He knew that you were supposed to love God with your whole heart, your whole being, all your strength, all your will, all that. He knew that you were supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And yet, when he was faced with the opportunity do so, he chose not to. The same thing happens with the Levite. A Levite's responsibility is a little less than a priest's, but the Levite's responsibility is what? A Levite passes by and he too ignores the poor man's plight. He comes, a Levite is responsible for caring for and tending to the the aspects of temple worship and ministering to the priests so that they can perform their tasks. Once again, this is somebody who should know who God is, know what God requires of him, and this knowledge should lead to a great love of God and a great love for others. But as he goes by, he chooses to live in the same way. He chooses to look on this poor man and he ignores his sorrowful plight. And 
basically the idea is um, that everybody that's listening to the story is kind of thinking, okay, there's, you know, we typically think of threes, you know, uh, groups of three. Uh, people talk about, you know, bad things happen in groups of threes. And that's not quite the idea here. But, like, when you would talk about Levites, priests, and then the other word that you were typically kind of, like, waiting for the person to talk about was Israelites, right? So, like, probably the audience that's listening to this is like, all right, we're going to have one of the common folks of Israel that's going to come, and they're going to see this. And Jesus' point is um, the common man of Israel is your neighbor. And, you know, I mean, you can kind of get the, the sense of, like, excitement's building, like, you know, this is available for everybody, and yet that's not what he does. Because what he says is, but a certain Samaritan comes by. Samaritan passes the man and looks on him with compassion. And, you know, as much hostility as we have in our current nation with, you know, different ethnic groups, uh, having disagreements and having, uh, you know, fights among themselves. Nothing that we have in America measures up to anywhere close to the amount of anxiety and frustration and anger and animosity that was between Samaritans and Jews. They absolutely hated each other. And both of them claimed to be the descendants of Abraham and both of them looked at the other group and said you have taken the word of God and you've twisted it and you made it to be your own thing and you have effectively uh, polluted the word of God. And as a result both sides hated each other and they didn't want anything to do with each other. And they told horrible stories about each other. And so if there's like a group of people that you could think of as poorly in society as possible, the Israelites thought of those people as the Samaritans. And so Jesus is telling this story and he's setting it up already as if who is the neighbor? The neighbor is the one who takes compassion. And he's saying that's what you and I should do. So he cared for him at his own cost. And as he highlights the various aspects of the man's care for him, he says uh, he bandaged his wounds. It's possible that he's using his own, um, his own clothing in, in part of this. It, it doesn't state that clearly, but it's possible. He's pouring on various uh, ointments, oil and wine, seem to be of medicinal value. He sets him on his own horse, or his own animal at least. He brings him to an inn. He takes care of him. And then the next day he leaves him with two denarii. And he gives, he gives them to the innkeeper and instructs him to take care of him for as long as it takes. And one day he will return and he'll make it up to the innkeeper. Two denarii is about two days wages, but most people think that it would have cared for this man for between two and three weeks, the commentators disagree as to exactly how long this would have paid for a and for a man and for physical care of this nature. But it would have cared for him for a while. And he really gives him a kind of blank check, right? Like, how does he know that the innkeeper is charging him for how many extra days beyond two denarii he's staying? 
it's it's pretty significant sacrifice that this guy is willingly signing himself up for as he approaches the innkeeper and says, take care of him. I'm going to pay for it out of my own pocket. I will ensure that this man's um, bills are paid. He has nothing to care for himself with. And so Jesus tells this whole story, and then Jesus turns once again, and he looks at the man who's asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asks him, well, what do you think the Bible says? Or what do you think the scriptures say? The man says, you know, love the Lord your God with everything you have, and love your neighbor. Jesus says, go and do that. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. And the man's response is, um, who's my neighbor? Let's get that part really clear, because I don't want to overdo that part, you know. And Jesus' response is, who's your neighbor? The neighbor is the person who's willing to take opportunities that they have to care for needs that they have opportunity to provide for. It's a pretty significant uh, step in defining what a neighbor is. And the extent to which you and I should be willing to go in demonstrating the love that we have for others. So Jesus asked him, which of the three proved to be his neighbor? And the man acknowledges that Samaritan is the only one who showed mercy. He's, he's unwilling to actually state, uh, you know, the Samaritan is the one. He, he says, uh, he who showed mercy on him. There's only one of the three that showed anything that could resemble mercy to the man. And Jesus' response is, we must love the people God provides us with opportunities. He says, go and do likewise. As he answers the question, who is my neighbor? He's pretty much saying, hey, who's your neighbor? Who does God put in your path that you are capable of showing compassion and mercy to? That's your neighbor. Go and demonstrate faith and love to them. And if you do so, demonstrates that something has transformed in who you are and something has changed about what you trust. And that faith will justify you, not your work. <coughs> so, as, as we think about application, as we think about what is, um, what is Jesus seeking to teach us about how we love and how we interact with, how we engage with other people, I think that there's a couple of different things that we should draw our attention to. Faith is the only thing that makes us right in our standing before the Lord. The lawyer comes to Jesus and he realizes that there is a problem. You get the sense that this man realizes Something alienates him from God, and something prohibits prohibits him from having eternal life. And he realizes that there's a need, and he realizes that something must change to care for that need. <laughs> and, and Jesus tells him effectively, um, it, it has to really stem from your trust, right? And the same thing is true for you and I. Um, 
you cannot justify yourself. But as you respond to God who demonstrates who he is in faith and it leads to belief in him, which follows with love, it should demonstrate itself in drastic ways. But if you're here and you're like, I'm not sure that I've ever placed my faith in Christ's finished work, then that is a starting point. That's a starting point for this lawyer. He doesn't realize it. He doesn't get it. I think that the story ends with this man still thinking, I'm going to find some way to justify myself. There is no actual He's still lost. He's still aimlessly and meaninglessly pursuing good works. And at the end of all that, he will still come up as we think about what does it look like then for you and I to demonstrate love as Jesus is calling upon you and I to demonstrate love. I think one of the things that you and I need to do is we need to find ways to care for the needs of people in our lives. And as, you, as you think about that, you know, I mean, we, we have different, um, different positions in life, different economic backgrounds. Uh, some of you, you know, you're closer to retirement. Some of you are in retirement. Some of you are just starting out. Some of you are students, and there's not much economic ability right there, um, unless your parents are far more generous with allowances than my parents were. Uh, probably not. And so um, how do you care for people, the needs of people in your life? And, and let, me, let me take us back to Ruth. Ruth and Naomi come into Israel, and what is their economic position? It's bad. It's really bad. Okay? Um, husband's dead. Malon and Kilion are dead. Um, the one wife has gone back. Naomi's begged Ruth, please leave. I have nothing left for you. If I were to have a child today, would you wait for him to grow up? Please leave. God's forgotten about me. God's forsaken me. How dare you seek to trust him? That's what Naomi says to Ruth. And Ruth comes back and she's like, no, Ruth. No, no, Naomi. Your God's going to be my God. Where you die, I'm going to die. Your people are going to be my people. We're going to make it through this together. And you just kind of get the idea that as they walk away from Moab and they're walking towards Israel, they're like, Naomi's ahead a couple of steps, just rolling her eyes like, this lady is completely bonkers. Like, if we had insane asylums in Israel, that's where I'd put this girl once we get there, because there's nothing for her, right? And yet, God has provided a means by which people could be receive basic sustenance in the time. And so Ruth has no physical wealth upon which she can go and provide for her mother, but she does have physical health. She is far younger than her mother. It's interesting that her mother never goes to the field to gather wheat, right? Why? One kind of assumes that mom was not able to do that. And yet Ruth had the ability to provide for needs. 
And Naomi was a lady in her life who had needs. And so she looked at the resources that she had, not just financial resources, but she said, how can I use the resources that I have to provide for needs? And, and so as you and I think through this, the fact that God wants you and I to demonstrate mercy and compassion to those that we see have needs, it may not be simply financial. In fact, a lot of times it's going to be far more than just financial. As children, it may look like helping out around the house with various tasks and chores that maybe you're not even asked to do. It may look like looking out at other people within the church who have things that they are unable to do and saying, how can I assist you? The same thing goes for us as adults because none of us have unlimited resources of any kind, whether it be time, finances, or wisdom to share, right? If everybody came and asked you a question, you couldn't answer all of them because there's too many people with too many questions, right? But what you do have and what opportunity you have, we find ways to share and care for the needs of people in our life. And so that's that's one way in which we we apply the passage. We look for needs of people in our life, and we seek to find ways to fulfill and care for those needs. Our resources may be limited, but we can still find ways to use uh, the various things that God has given us to care for various needs that we're aware of. The other thing is that we need to demonstrate mercy to those who are suffering. And this is, once again, something that I think we can illustrate as we think about even the Old Testament, as we think about um, the Samaritans' understanding. Well, the Samaritans had many aspects of their religious system that were completely out of alignment with the, uh, the canon of the actual Old Testament that's the true Old Testament. So they, they pretty much stayed. Uh, the first five books of the Old Testament we accept as the Bible, and nothing else. They pretty much rejected the whole exile and stuff like that, and they said that there's a different place to worship, and that's why, you know, Jesus and the Samaritan woman have that conversation about, you know, you guys say you're supposed to worship here, but we say you're supposed to worship here. So they've completely rejected many of the aspects of historical, uh, historical truth about how God said that people were supposed to relate with each other. And yet he gets this right. The Samaritan, in contrast to the religious people of the day who should have understood who God was and how God wanted people to relate to others, the Samaritan who's gotten many other aspects about even where God wants people to worship and who Israel is and who Israel is not, etc., etc., he's the one who understands how God wants people to relate to others. He's the one who's demonstrating mercy. And it takes us back to even thinking about Jonah. Jonah is very much like uh, the priest and the Levite in a sense, right? Jonah's told, hey, uh, Nineveh is sinned, and I want you to go and tell them that they're sinning against me and doom is coming. And what does Jonah do? Like the whole story. 
goes, God, you're a merciful God. If I go and tell them that, they'll repent. And if they repent, you won't destroy them. I would like you to destroy them, please. And so the whole story is Jonah finding ways to disobey God and seek to have somebody get destroyed. And the whole story is about God over and over again saying, no, I'm a loving God, I'm a merciful God, and I want to demonstrate my mercy through you, Jonah. Go accomplish that. At the end of the story, what happens? Jonah gets mad at God because he doesn't demonstrate mercy to a plant that he allowed to sprout up and grow and provide him shade in one single day. And, and the question then should come to us, what does my life look like when it comes to this whole conversation of demonstrating compassion and mercy? Is my life characterized by the priests and the Levites and by how Jonah approached mercy? Or is my approach to demonstrating mercy and compassion to people who are in need of it guided and directed by God's view of mercy? Is it directed by the Samaritan's view of mercy. The Samaritan who, I mean, like, he had very little going for him. This should have directed him and led him to this understanding of what God wanted from him. Yet, the religious leaders, the Levites and the priests in the story, they don't get it. So demonstrate mercy to those who are suffering. And then our love for neighbors demonstrates that we do love the Lord. As you and I are willing to take time out of our schedules, out of our out of our various commitments to time, to resources, to um, even our um, our ability to just kind of rest and relax and disengage from everything else, what's it demonstrating? It's demonstrating where we place our trust. I'm willing to use of my resources, whatever those resources are, whether it be our physical strength as Ruth did, whether it be our financial resources as a Samaritan does, whether it be our time resources as we've, we've mentioned previously, or any other set of resources, when we are willing to use those resources to care for people, it demonstrates that something has changed about us. Why? Because my natural inclination and your natural inclination is not to give of my resources and all resources of others. They're a hard commodity, right? Nobody has limitless time. Nobody has limitless uh, energy. Nobody has limitless strength, limitless money. And so the fact that I'm willing to use those resources points to something that's happening deeper than just me giving an extra dollar or me giving an extra hour, or me giving of my energy or of some other resource that I have. It demonstrates what? It demonstrates that my heart has been transformed. And that's why Jesus tells them, you want to have eternal life? It's not that you're actually going to receive eternal life by the true love. But the true love demonstrates something deeper has happened to you. And that something deeper is that you have trusted in God. You believe God's word to be true, and you believe and you depend upon it. And as a result, it demonstrates that you have become righteous, that you are justified, not because you've done these things, 
that you're doing these things because of what you believe. And so he challenges us to love God, to continue to pursue after loving God, but as we grow in our love for God, it should lead to a greater love for the things that God loves. If God loves to demonstrate his mercy, God loves to demonstrate his compassion. It portrays his character. He gives you and I the opportunity throughout life numerous times to demonstrate compassion, to demonstrate mercy. And he says that this will demonstrate our love and our relationship with God to a world that is watching us. So let me encourage you this week. Pursue loving God and allow that love for God to be demonstrated by loving what God loves. Loving the people that God puts in your life. It's hard. It takes time. It takes resources. It takes energy. It takes finances. And yet, God says that this is worth it. He concludes, you can kind of just see this lawyer marching off in a huff, right? Go and do likewise. And it's like, there goes another one, right? Like, you don't get to the end of the story and expect a good result. But, how are, how are you and I going to Are you and I going to respond by resolving to love God and love others more and better? Or are you going to respond in the same way that we expect that this world does? Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it teaches it transforms our thoughts and our desires. We pray that you would help us to think through the passage, and as we do so, that it would help us to love you and to love others more fully, that we would seek to provide for the needs that we are able to, and that we would seek to find ways to demonstrate uh, your mercy to the world, and that as we do so, that people would see that it's not because of us, it's not because of a desire to justify ourselves, but it's because of the fact that we have been justified that we do what we do. In your name we pray.